This is Within and Between, a podcast about the methods and meta-science behind developmental science. Hi, it's Jessica Logan. And it's Sarah Hart. Welcome back to another episode of Within and Between. Hello. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. How are you doing, Jessica? I am doing all right. It's the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. It's uh, half the year has gone by, which is absolutely blowing my mind, honestly. Oh, I was not ready for that piece of reality. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I should have warned you. <laughs> take a deep breath and then I'll t- – sorry, listeners. I apologize. Everyone take a deep breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge that we are more than halfway through 2021. And then also means, you know, July, such a hopeful month <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for the nine months academic. <laughs> uh, it's true. It's true. It's when you start to think, ah, oh, I can do this. I can get stuff done. I have so, so, I have a, a, so much time left. So much time. I can do these big Ugh. projects that I have planned for. I will. It's time for grant writing. Yes, I Ooh. will be able to write all those grants that I said that I'm going to write. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, I. mm, mm -hmm. What is really interesting to me, I think, is that my kids, even, I pointed out that it's halfway through the year and they were like, what? And I feel like when you're a kid, a month is an eternity. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how long summer vacation felt like when you were a kid? It just felt like it went on and on and on and on and on. And they are sort of both like, what? What do you mean, July? It's July already. And that tells me that time is totally warped for everyone. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Like for them, it should be the good old days. But it's not. It's still the cooped up inside days. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it's July. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've seen this, but all of the new impact factors are out. Oh, it's, yes, hard to be in your email box or the internet without... Getting bombarded with information of the most recent impact factors for the journals that think you want to know. Mm-hmm. Now, are we getting, do you think you get as many emails from the people that their impact factor has gone down a little bit um, as you do from emails where impact factors go up? Amazingly enough, I have not seen an email about anybody's impact factor going down. And I have to assume <laughs> if people are going up, People are going They would let down. us know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that must be going down. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not a finite resource. So everybody could go up. Maybe. And it's I did not- hear that there's something funny that happened this year, right? They changed the, how they're doing the calculation. So everybody is going up. A lot of people are. A lot of journals. Great. So a new version of a relatively meaningless piece has, of information has input you know i along with these announcements are the you know is the internet talking about you know you should ignore impact factor anyways uh and i really like impact factor has never had a really big role in my life has it for you yeah. is this maybe less of a thing in developmental science that's a really good question because to me I, I feel like go ahead my 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 tenure for any like they're not i have to write it down but I've never had anyone say anything like you're only publishing in you're like you're you're not publishing in enough high impact factor journals. Yeah, we don't we don't even write it down at FSU. Um, oh. But I like I grew up in a model of you know you know the journals that are like you know top tier journals. You know you have your top. I have like my top top in science, top in psychology, top in mm-hmm. education you know, top in, in developmental science, top in educational psych, um, you know, and so they kind of know, you know, what journals I think of as kind of best in each of Mm -hmm. those categories. Uh, and it's more by reputation and that's how I feel like we talk about it. And I look at impact factors sometimes that doesn't necessarily map onto the impact factors. I agree. I have noticed that too, where I was like, oh, well, this journal that I think of is extremely reputable. Like the impact factor isn't that It's not like that. What's that one cancer journal that came out this week? It was like their impact factor is 508. I didn't see that. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) the impact factor is 508 because they have one really highly cited article. No. It's like one article has two, like 20,000 citations. 
It's the, it's the, uh, I'm making that number up. So please don't quote me on that. I don't remember. It's a very obscenely high number and it's like the annual cancer statistics and they just, that's where they publish them every Uh... year. And so that's the one that gets cited all the time. And then all the other ones sort of get carried along (laughs) because of that one extra super, uh, super high citation rate. So journal editors, note to self, (laughs) find one really highly cited article. I think that the idea of impact factor, I I wonder, this is not even on our outline, so sorry for the tangent, but I wonder if the idea of that is based on like which journal you would have in your house or in your office so that you would leaf through it and maybe look at the other articles in the paper copy. Like, is that why we care about impact factors? Because it's like an in, you know how I have this thing about the the index loses meaning once it becomes an index. That's yeah. it's not my thing. That's like a, somebody very famous it's like whose an eco- name I forget. Economics thing, right? Yeah. As soon as you make it an index, that index loses all meaning. And so I think that that sort of happens with impact factors, but also just technology has changed impact factors. I don't read a whole journal back to front. No, ever. I have no idea why that. Uh, to me, I just think. It's a number where higher is better. And, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> kind of like a bank account. Yeah. Or like, you know, we like to compare slash swing around things and see how much, what's bigger than other things. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the bigger office? Exactly. For example. Yeah. Or uh, other things that people like to compare size of. I don't know. Um... <laughs> And so it's just, you know, it's a, it's a easy <laughs> to understand. <laughs> this you know. one's better because the number's bigger. Yeah. And we don't have to think and you don't have to read the paper and determine the quality of the paper or the like. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, I will say, I do think that these conversations about impact factor happen much less in my developmental psych area of my department, yet um, it is, it drives a lot of the conversations say when I hear social social psych researchers talk about, mm-hmm. you know, they have just a few journals that you need to be publishing in, and that's all that matters. Um, I, yeah, I've heard of this too, where yeah. it's like if you don't publish in JPSP X journal, or Psych Science, then you won't get tenure. Yeah, and you're not getting a job if you don't that's have one wild. from grad school and stuff. And yeah, that's just that I don't hear those conversations happening in developmental science the same way about I don't an either. individual journal. But but I do think, to be fair, you and I both have published in some what is considered to be high tier journals within developmental science. Mm-hmm. So we're not getting that feedback and you haven't been getting that feedback, but you came into this job with publications in, in high quality journals. So I wonder if you would have gotten that feedback if that was not the case. Yes. It is a counterfactual. Yes. Cannot yes. Prove. <laughs> yes. So we may not be good examples. No, we are likely terrible examples. So <laughs> it very well could be the case. And our- But I don't hear – it's not a thing that I hear either. It's like if I'm reviewing applications for mm-hmm. somewhere, we someone might say, ooh, they have a really high-quality journal. But it's not, ooh, they don't have any. Mm-hmm. So it's like a bonus exciting thing and not an expectation yeah. at this point. Yeah, That doesn't mean it won't be next year, but – it's not an expectation right now. All right. So I brought up the idea of impact factors yeah. because I wanted us to talk a little bit today about the this, this sort of publication system, the process and the system. No, not the process. The journals and that are out there mm-hmm. and how they work. Um, so these high quality journals, um, a lot of them are not free to make it understatement (laughs) (laughs) they are expensive to read uh so if you want to read an article that's in one of these very high quality journals then you will have to pay for it somehow Mm -hmm. they don't hand them out for free for the most part no and you know if you were not aware of this as an academic before because your library just did it so seamlessly for you that you didn't even pay attention you just got the article Um, you certainly have paid attention if you've been working from home during COVID because really good point. Suddenly you are away from your campus 
wire Wi-Fi that just does it automatically and connects via your library access. And instead you are like hitting paywall after paywall after paywall. Mm-hmm. Every time. And the paywall is that thing that comes up where you find the journal and it gives you the abstract and then it says, would you like to purchase this for $15.99? If you're lucky, if it's that low anymore. Now it's like $35. I apologize. Would you like to rent this for two hours for $15.99? There there you go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Or would you like to buy it for $57? Yeah, those are paywalls and those are uh, the bane of a lot of researchers' existence. And I think, you know, we're really lucky to work at these big universities that have a lot of contracts with these uh, these journals. So it's pretty easy for us to get access to these. But yeah, um, the public doesn't have that access or, you know, none, you know, are one in the U.S. universities, you know, don't have that type of access. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's explain what that what I mean by that. So the, the way that these journals operate is if somebody there's two a couple of ways to pay for accessing these uh, journals. And one way is that you pay for the article you want to see as an individual person. Mm-hmm. And then the other way is with an institutional account. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about those institutional accounts and how they how they work? Yeah, so for uh, I, it is my understanding that at most universities this happens to your libraries. So your libraries are, you know, are not just there. The institutional libraries are not just there to hold the books of the university, but they really are, one of their main roles right now is navigating journal subscriptions, um, and they negotiate what's often called the big deal. Uh, and so the big deal is with an um, an individual, you know publisher like Elsevier or Springer or the like, uh, and they negotiate these big deals, which are packaged deals of journals. And so like a big deal with Elsevier could be like a thousand journal titles um, that they pay. Um, Our university was paying something like the big deal for Elsevier was going to go up to like a million dollars a year in costs. (sighs) (sighs) And you have to warn us before you say a number like that. Yeah. <laughs> million dollars. So then, and of course, you know, libraries don't usually get huge budgets. Uh, and these deals are going, the, you know, these package deals are going up and up and up. And the libraries are trying to, you know, figure out what to do. And one step that I saw FSU do is break apart these big deals and say, okay, we don't need all thousand journal titles. We don't use them. And they look at what their users are actually using because they can track the the user statistics. And instead they can buy journal titles, access to journal titles by journal specific. And so then there's like a, you know, an a la carte pricing for each journal and they can do the a la carte pricing. So that's usually what journals are, or what libraries are doing. They're either doing the a la carte uh, journal purchasing or these big deals where they get hundreds of journal titles all in one package deal. Wow. It's kind of like how you wish the cable company would let you do. (laughs) I only want HBO. The Turner. I want the Turner Classic Movies and country music television, and I want nothing else. We just showed our personalities right there. <laughs> I'm like, is there TV other than HBO? I don't know. <laughs> no, don't they? Isn't their whole tagline, it's not TV, it's HBO? Oh, they, see? <laughs> That's what you wish you could do, right? Like, I don't need access to all of these things. I just need access to one or two of them. And so uh, you you sort of alluded to that there. So, so for a long time, uh, most a lot of these big institutions have been pl- paying – those for the big deal, paying a ton of money to access journals. And they would do it with every different company, right? So you'd have yeah. to do it with Wiley and then you have to do it with Elsevier and then you have to do it. So it's just a ton of different big deals going on. Yeah, different negotiations. And, so, and they would do so like FSU tried to do stuff. We're in a in a you know, we're a state university and a pretty strong state university system here in Florida. Uh, and so they would uh, join up with the other state universities to make their collective bargaining a little bit stronger. So the big deal would actually then I come, you know, you know, encompass all the state universities. Um, but huh, that's cool. It was part of uh, I'm I think I am no longer in the service position. An interesting thing as an academic is sometimes you just are not in a service position anymore and you don't realize that you don't 
longer have that service anymore. So I don't oh. think I'm on this committee anymore. Uh, <laughs> but um, there was for a while was on the Open Science Advisory Committee at FSU. And it was um, a university level committee run by the libraries. Because um, we have a, a, a crew uh, doing some really interesting kind of open science uh, academic librarian uh, work. Uh, and um, we helped... With the faculty senate, we helped kind of start um, figuring out what FSU was going to do about their Elsevier costs, uh, because yeah. the costs were going up like crazy. Elsevier is the one, if you know, like everybody kind of calls out as the worst. I guess we looked up quickly before the podcast. We felt we started reporting. I should say that um, they, Elsevier has a approaching a forty percent uh, profit margin, uh, and you know, I am not in business. I've never been in business, but the internet tells me that is an obscenely high profit margin, higher than even like the worst companies that you've heard of. Um, and so it's like the highest of the high profit margin and they just, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to do a comparison. So I just quickly looked up Amazon, which is like what people are talking about is like the evilest of evil companies. Yeah. So Amazon net profit margin as of March 31st, 2021, 6.4%. Shoot. <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to say over 20% at least. 6.4. Wow. Now that was a quick Google search. Who knows if those yeah. are comparable yeah. estimates, but just for fun of it, let's pretend that they're comparable. Cuz well, not question it. Yeah. So, yeah, so FSU was really in this bind. Um what was happening to it was the libraries, you know, I think like at many universities their budgets were getting slashed. Libraries are not um fancy to support uh our library for whatever misfortune uh, is not uh thought to be affiliated with our research branch at all so you know you have all these academics that are bringing in you know grant money and the indirects are coming into the university and the library is nowhere in the chain of hands being held out of the indirect flow back that seems ridiculous yeah wow. the libraries here at fsu are counted as kind of like their own college uh, and so they then get from the president or provost's office money trickling down to to them at like a college rather than them being part of the research infrastructure the same way. Huh. And I think there's like just this old historical reason why that happens here at FSU. Uh, and I don't know how reflective that is of other universities. But mm -hmm. um, so anyway, budgets were going down and the contract prices were going up. And so for a few years, when I was first starting as an assistant professor, one of our favorite committees, because we really uh, protect assistant professors in my department from service. So one of the few committees that we ever put an assistant professor on is the library committee. Uh, and that's, you know, three professors that interact with the librarian uh, <laughs> and that you get like an email a year and that's your service. Um, nice. But one of the jobs that started to happen for that library committee when I was on it was we were given lists of journals uh, and we had to like pull the faculty in our department to be like, okay, they're going to buy one-off journal subscriptions to these journals. Which titles do you actually read? Here are mm. the ones. And that what we'd get was this list and it was hundreds of journals long and it each had a price and we had the total money that they were willing to spend um, a year. And so you had to kind of rank them and the Excel sheet <gasps> would just like subtract in that total amount of money that you had to spend for journal title access. So they were doing that kind of stuff for a while, you know, trying to break apart the big deals to just do one-off payment. And then it, then at some point during that early process, I believe it was the Netherlands was the first to just say enough to Elsevier and the mm. Netherlands as a country, I think um, was negotiating its big deal and they said no, and they broke the deal, uh, and they entered into no contract with Elsevier. So they lost all access, the country, to Elsevier journal titles. Well, they were threatened that that was going to happen. Elsevier didn't actually do it for a while, but then I think it did go through. Whoa. So we had this leading example uh, in Europe of a country doing it for all of the universities in its system. And I think the librarians at FSU were seeing this um, and they uh, proposed it that we did something similar, that they were just going to cut off Elsevier to a total, completely cut it off. Um, they had tried some other techniques, uh, 
you know, there was this anyway, all these reasons why it was going to happen. And so as best as I know, um, for FSU was one of the first universities in the U.S. to do it. It ended up happening around the same time that the UC system in the U.S., so the University of California system did something similar within the same time frame. And so um, everybody talks about the UC system because it's so much bigger and more powerful that they were mm. the kind of the first. But I, I believe maybe timing-wise FSU was the first or close to it. Mm-hmm. Um and so just by complete sheer like weird roll of the dice, the libraries propose this to the faculty senate. Uh, and I don't know if people just weren't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Not paying attention to a faculty meeting? I know. Never. But it, it went through the faculty senate. Um, wow. And it had to go through this committee I was on and it like went through this committee and some of the other STEM, the representatives from other STEM departments on this committee, this open science committee were like, what, what are we talking about? Uh, and I was like, psychology's for it. <laughs> yes. Nice. And just everyone kind of fell in line. And I would say what, why I think it went through is the librarians were really smart. There was science coming, like meta science work coming out of librarianship science, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, that this could be successful if you allowed academics, mostly it's at the professor level. So it's at, this is at the faculty level at our university. If you give them the option that the university will pay that price that you see when you hit a paywall, that's like, will you pay $39 for this article? the university offers to pay that. So what I was able to say to my colleagues in psychology and why I got everybody on board was I could say that if they really needed an Elsevier article at that moment, the library would pay $39 to give them access to it. Uh, Nice. But then otherwise, the library would take, was using a service that took up to 24 hours to find that PDF for you through interlibrary loan or the like. And so what they did, and so that, so I could convince people, I'm like, if you need a PDF immediately, you can get it. Otherwise, it's 24 hours. Wow. And Wow, that's totally reasonable. And we're going to save the university like a million dollars a year. Uh, save the libraries. Uh, wow. And, um, and so it flew through the Senate, the, our committee and other places, and it the first try. And so they did not renew their big deal with Elsevier. They did not renew the deal at all. So we have no access to Elsevier journal titles as a university. And and this has been probably about two years now, two and a half years. We've had no access. We got completely cut off. Um, The idea, the hope was that Elsevier would come back with a better better terms and that we would enter into a new big deal that did happen for UC. They recently entered into a new big deal and it did happen for the Netherlands. They went into a new, every, everything published from the Netherlands researchers are all open access. And I think UC is doing something similar. Um, as it turns out, FSU is a little bit too small of a fish, I think. So we just continue <laughs> to not have access. <laughs> but has that so so thinking about the last two years, has that impacted your work at all? No, I have one time asked the library to pay for something immediately. Otherwise, I'm like, you know, it can it it, it can wait 24 hours. And most yeah. of the time it's come in less than 24 hours. Uh, but it's been at the height of uh, a grant that I was writing where I was like, I really need this paper. Um, right now. Uh-huh. Uh, but otherwise, no, yeah, this just screen pops up. They're like, we don't have access, but you know, it will cost the library $20, $39 and we will do it right now for you. No problem. Or you can wait and it won't cost us anything. And you just select what option. Only faculty can do this. Uh, graduate students, unfortunately, are not given the option to for the library to pay $39 to or whatever the price is to get the immediate access. Um, so all students at the university have to wait to get access. So, you know, if we had one of them on this, they'd probably been like, this has been the worst thing ever. Uh, but at but least- like, I mean, it's still so good. 24 hours and you don't have to go anywhere. No, they like, email you the PDF. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> How many hours did you spend in a library photocopying oh, yeah. articles? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let alone, I was just leading, reading about, you know, before that it was you had to physically write a letter to someone if you needed a copy of a PDF 
of it, not a PDF. They weren't PDFs then, obviously, of, of a, you know, send me a physical copy. Like, I think my very first paper that I ever published, they sent me 25 copies, courtesy paper yeah. versions. Oh, yeah. So that I could hand them out to people. I I'd totally forgotten that that was a thing. <laughs> So yeah, so it's not been so bad. Um, I think other universities have done it since. Um, uh-huh. But I so because I'm off this committee, I, I don't hear the like chatter anymore of what how this is all going down. At different what the places. fallouts happened. Yeah, interesting. Um, I have C because it hit the internet, you know, about the UC uh, system. Uh, and the Netherlands, you know, making these new big deals um, that include open access for anything written by their own investigators. But um, wow, that we are not there at FSU, and I don't know what's going to happen next. But yeah, that's at least kind of with the the idea being we need to push back against Elsevier because their profit margin, you know, that's we are academic. That you know the the you know scholars are producing this scholarship. We are mm-hmm. giving it for free to Elsevier, who is then charging our university to buy back that scholarship at a 40% profit margin. Uh, Mm. And I think that's just, you know, unpalatable for many people. Well put, unpalatable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how it works. People, that's really terrifying, honestly. Just, and a lot of that work is funded. Like any of the funded work is funded by taxpayer dollars here in the U S often. Um, and so, you know, then it's even to get access to that publicly funded work is potentially costs money, depending yeah. on the kind of agreement that you have. Yeah, they don't even have, potentially the public doesn't not potentially most of the public does not have access to it without paying money. Wow. So then let's talk about alternatives. So if you're not, uh, if you're not able to access that um, information, wait, let me ask you this. If you're not able to access it, you're still able to publish in it if you wanted to, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. I know. So it doesn't stop you from doing that. No. Interesting. All right. Well, maybe we'll talk about yeah, that Yeah, then in you a get in a weird situation. This has happened to me before where I cannot, you know, you see this sometimes on Twitter. You can't, like the person cannot get to their own paper. <laughs> they can't get a PDF <laughs> copy of their own paper. <laughs> and then everyone's like, what are we doing? What? What's? what's Why are we doing this? Yeah. Exactly. So why are we doing this? What's an alternative? What else do we have to go on? So uh, the alternatives you mentioned it a minute ago is open access. So there are whole journals that are openly accessible to anybody who wants to read whatever articles are published within their journal. So it's free to read, free to access. Yeah. And if you remember, we did that. uh, One of our episodes, we talked about the different levels of open access, right? We talked about Mm -hmm. green and gold and... The other one. There is another one that I remember forgetting what color it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in our preprints episode, I yeah. think, right? So you can you can learn more there about exactly the different levels of open access. Um, but I would say even since, you know, more and more of these journals, these open access journals are coming about. Um, and even more of the like Elsevier, you know, like the major publishing companies are like, oh, we can have these open access journals too for you if you would like. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you just pay thousands of dollars for it. <laughs> yeah. And you pay on the front end. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a couple of different uh, different ones, like you said, different open access. But one of the ones I wanted to talk about was the, the overlay journal. Yeah, which we didn't really get is, into before because I'd actually never heard of it before. Yeah, it's a cool I like idea of um, trying to make open not only the uh, the not only the final paper, but also the review that happens as, as part of the paper. Mm. And so the concept behind an overlay journal is that you, you, the author, publish a preprint, and then you tell the overlay journal, hey, I have a preprint up. And then they that preprint enters into their review system. Reviews are open and put alongside the preprint. And then the preprint, you can up if it's accepted, or, or you need to do a revise and resubmit, for example, you just update the preprint. So you can see the versions of it and how it responds, how people respond to reviewers' uh, comments over time. And so then once it's accepted, it is like, it, I, I'm actually not sure exactly how this part works, but there's a, either it's, it's not printed. I think most of the overlay journals I've seen are all online so that it's hosted within the new journal as well as it stays on your preprint server. 
So you get just like with any other journal. Hmm. So then you have the whole process is is open. And there's no physical copy that shows up at your house Mm -hmm. or your office. So that's, I guess, pros and cons of that one. So anyway, wanted to bring that specific kind up. And the rest of them, I think, function a little bit more like a traditional journal where either there's a print version that will be bound and shipped off or to to the members of the organization, or it's online for for viewing along with the rest of the journal contents. Mm -hmm. Like in an issue or something like that. Mm -hmm. Once it's published in an issue. I do think there are some that have online only versus online and print. Like I think there may be some online only types of open access papers Hmm. that don't get printed. But I also could be making that up. (laughs) More and more the open access papers that I publish are often for journals that don't have a pub, don't, don't print anything. I just don't. I don't get physical journals anymore. I mean, I, I anything that I'm a member of, I'll say, please don't send me the journal because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need the paper copies. No, but I mean, like these journals don't e- don't even have that option. There is no printed version. Oh, interesting. Okay, so then if it's not costing the reader something to access it, mm-hmm. they're still going to cost something. So the way that they do that is they pass the cost on to the author. Mm-hmm. So now the author has to pay for the fee, the open access fee, in order to let the paper be open. Um, and the price of that really ranges from, you know, a couple of hundred dollars all the way up to very, very, very expensive, like $11,000, depending on the kind of journal you're publishing in. And some of them will like waive waive fees for the first couple of years or for your first journal submission or something like that. Um, so how have you as an author paid for those publication fees? The first time I had one of those, my first open access journal I published in was PLOS One. I have a publication there, I think in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that was our university had a, if you publish in a, like a true, like gold open access, which means like it is an open access journal. It's not a closed access like Elsevier journal where you're just paying them to have your paper be open access. But if it's a real gold open access journal, then uh, they would, um, they had like a um, a pot of money that they would pay the, the, um, the printing, the uh, publication the journal? charges. Yeah. Mm, okay. So that what I did, I have done that now, I think twice. Uh, and then otherwise I have, um, I now routinely budget it into my grants. So because I'm fortunate mm. to, uh, be in an area of science that, you know, is, is, is fundable and I get funding, uh, that, um, I budget those costs into my grant and I use grant money to pay for it. Smart. Yeah. I've done that. Uh, you know, I have paid sort of out of my research funds, my startup funds mm-hmm. once, and then, um, my university has an agreement with some of these journals that they the library will pay for the open access fee. Oh, okay. And so it they they're sort of spending the money the other way around. Mm-hmm. So by spending the money the one time, then they don't have to spend it every time anybody at the university wants to read it. I guess is their thinking. So that's that's how I have done it in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not cheap. Even the cheaper ones, I do enjoy. Well, um. I am, well, yeah, I'm going to skip this ahead a little bit, but I am part of a a journal uh, and I think you see more of uh, journals coming out now where there is no fee and it's kind of low. It's, you know, there's fewer bells and whistles on the website to submit, (laughs) Um, but there are no fees. And so I actually now preferentially look for those types of journals. There are no fees or really low fees. Um, versus, so like plus one, the fees have gotten really high. Um, Mm. and, uh, you know, I, I can, there is already now a system kind of setting up where a lot of people are, the expectation is open access to your, to your papers. Uh, but it's pricing a lot of people out of the market. You know, it's even Mm. pricing people with grants out of it. You know, it's, you might not be able to fund a graduate student if you're paying all these article processing fees. So, yeah, yeah. That's not ideal. Well, then, so now we have gone through alternatives to um, to 
publishing, basically, we have these open access journals, these freer, either free to read journals, and sometimes it sounds like free to publish if you're finding mm-hmm. those journals as well, which is great. And I will say quickly, I know you're about to transition us, but one what one thing I love about you know being an NIH funded investigator is you know at twelve months after publication, all NIH funded papers have to become open access. That is, um, I think, uh, was so key and so important that these uh, you know federal granting agencies here in the U.S. at least did was that they shifted their collective weight around and they told these publishers that you will release this, you know, publicly funded work 12 months. Uh, you know, I, I wish it wasn't 12 months. I wish it was immediate. And I was reading on the internet that there is this movement towards becoming more immediate, but at least mm. in the U.S. for m- much federally funded grant um, grant work, your the expectation is that your papers are op- uh, available openly after 12 months after publication. Oh, nice. Oh, that's great. Um, Okay, so what was I going to transition us to? Oh, I see. With So we talked about how, how you can potentially publish things in other types of journals. And now what I wanted to ask about was how, since you no longer have access to Elsevier through yeah. the libraries mostly, how are you finding PDFs? Yes, well, we've um, <clears throat> previously discussed SciHub. Uh <laughs> We have, or not, discussed SciHub, as yeah, the case may be. Yeah. So we won't go <laughs> hard into that again, because we probably went a little too hard last time into it. I think you're right. Um, yeah, you're definitely right. Now, I will say, even since we recorded that episode, um, SciHub is becoming harder to access right now, because there's like yeah. some major lawsuit against um, the woman who runs it. Uh, and so I've not had that much luck getting SciHub papers recently. Uh, and I read that um, she's not updating it with any new work right now while this lawsuit's going through. Um, yeah. So uh, still handy, but a little harder to use is SciHub right now. Um, mm-hmm. I have, uh, uh, I saw on Twitter somebody recommending this app that I love uh, that's called EndNote Click. Um, oh. It is called EndNote Click and I, I guess I'm trying to figure it out. I think it's because EndNote now owns it. It was not started by EndNote. It was a completely separate app. It is a Chrome extension that I add. Like you don't need the EndNote program. Cite- okay. Citation manager. So all it is is an extension that I use on Chrome uh, that what it recognizes, it knows when I go to, I'm like looking at a, a journal website or looking at a paper online. Uh, and what it does is, is it immediately goes and uh, interacts with my library system and pulls my library access to get that PDF. And so I don't, what it does is it saves you clicks. So it might not help me in the Elsevier sense because my library um, does not have access to Elsevier, but for some reason that doesn't seem to be a problem for me. I don't know if it then accesses the broader library system that my library is part of or whatever it is. So what you can, uh, what happens is, is that when you're looking at the, when you're using this EndNote click, when you're looking at the journal website and you're looking at a, a paper, there is now this new button. It's a purple button that is not part of the journal. It's the app coming up that's like get PDF. And then you click that and then it just put, it just embeds the PDF into the page you're on. I think and you it, may have to show me this later. Yeah. And it does it like legally, as it were, through your subscription service to your library. So rather than you, I could never fully figure out how to get my library when I'm working from home, how to get my immediate one-click access to PDFs through my library system. I could not, uh-huh. like, I, I, it was just really, really hard. <laughs> 17 I, clicks. Yeah. <laughs> so it does Literature that, searches. it does that automatically for you. So that is my new favorite. It's very successful at finding PDFs um, and everything I've needed. So that is wow. that's my go-to now is EndNote Click. All right. Well, we'll have to link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that I go to is uh, I will use Google Scholar all the time. It doesn't always. Sometimes it links to my library and I can see PDFs that way. But the other way is that Google Scholar now is talking to ResearchGate mm-hmm. and people are posting their publications on ResearchGate on their own private pages so that then you can potentially see it and download it. So that's another way I'm getting them is through ResearchGate and yeah. just regular Googling them. 
Yeah, and a key, a, a trick, I, I don't think, hopefully it's an obvious trick for everyone, but, you know, when you're looking at Google Scholar, you can see, like, see all seven versions. There's, like, there's a hyperlink at the bottom uh-huh. of the little snippet about the paper. Click that, and that then pulls up a list of all the different places on the internet that Google Scholar has found this paper and the first one that lists to you might not be the PDF version, but like three or four down will be the ResearchGate version with the PDF. So that's how I, my, my first line of defense of trying to find the PDF is always, I just immediately click that and just see all versions and see if any of them are a PDF version. Nice. Oh, that's a good one. I hadn't thought, I mean, I guess you're right. That is there, but I don't think I use that button. Oh, really? That's so what, uh, maybe yeah. I'm going to start I, using it. I immediately it. go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All seven versions. Somebody's posted it somewhere online, probably on one of their own websites. Or yeah, something. that's it. And it's they, potentially yeah. there to get the content. All right. So we've got, now we've sort of established that these profit margins are ridiculous and ruthless and we've got these other alternatives. So now is the the major question of the hour. Do you still publish with these for-profit journals? I do. I try not to. And Mm -hmm. I try, primarily I try to pick lesser of evils. Uh, So like I might go for Sage, which we can do in our field. Uh, I really, for me, there's only one journal that's like one of my favorite kind of solidly middle tier journal uh, from my work, uh, learning and individual differences, that's an Elsevier journal. Uh, and uh, I still do now kind of avoid that more often than I used to. But I mm-hmm. I do. I don't have like a line, line in the sand or anything where like we're not going to do this. Yeah. Um, I know I can always fall back on the NIH policy because all of my work is normally funded through NIH that it will become open access. Um, and so I don't typically pay for... A, a non-open access journal to make my one-off paper open access. Um, So those kind of higher fees are when you do that. So I've only actually ever paid those fees one time. And that was because we really wanted to place a paper about open science in a leading (laughs) journal of um, learning uh, 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 disabilities. Uh, And wanted it to be open. Yeah. If you've ever seen (laughs) commonly open science papers getting dragged on Twitter because they are behind a paywall, I'm like, I don't want to be dragged. So (laughs) we wanted to go in this journal because we wanted to reach that audience. Um, And it would not, going to an open access journal wouldn't have reached the audience the same way. So I did pay those higher than normal fees to make that one that one paper open access in a non-open access journal. But otherwise, that's the only time I've done that. Otherwise, if if I want it to be open access, which I would like most of my work to be open access, I um, go to an open access journal or wait the 12 months. Also now preprints. All of my work has been preprinted, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. so I make sure that everything has a final preprint available um, so that I kind of triangulate how I keep things open access. That's really smart. So I do a lot more collaborative, I mean, collaborative work where I'm not the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we both do a lot of collaborative work. I just mean that like, I think 80% of my work is stuff I'm not leading. Yeah. Um, so the bulk of my work is uh, stuff that I work on, but am not the decider on. Mm-hmm. So this is something that I will raise in our discussions in our group discussions of like, I really feel like this is not where we want where we want to be sending these papers. Like if we can, let's try sending them other places. So I try to make us prioritize uh, journals that don't do these things that don't have those 40% profit margins. Um, Because I don't have much work funded by the NIH. um, And I don't know for sure how IES works for their their funding and how soon it has to be open access. I know it has to be in ERIC. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how that works and links up with the journal. I probably should have prepared that before we talked about it today. Oh, well. Still not prepared. <laughs> All right. So that's jur- – what about reviewing? Do you still review for them? Are you on review boards? Do you take journal assignment reviews for them? Yes, I 
Well, you know, it really, it's learning and individual differences is like one of the few journals that um, I am on their board. They actually very rarely ask me to do reviews. Um, mm. So I just kind of forget about it. Um, the rest, you know, I don't mind like APA journals, you know, um, that I, I'm on boards for those or kind of something similar. So it feels a little bit less dirty um, than that one Elsevier. In general, hmm. if it's Elsevier asking me to review a paper and I'm not on their board, I am much more likely to say no to review those papers. Um, hmm. But that's also a combination of not being on their board. And at this point, I'm on enough boards that ask me to review papers that I can't take many more that I'm not on the board for. Sure. Uh, now, as an editor, uh, I'm an associate editor at two places. And the reason why I'm an associate editor at two places, because uh, I had intended to be at zero places in an associate <laughs> editor, <laughs> uh, is um, I uh, got asked to be an associate editor for a, a new newish society journal for um, uh, the Math Cognition Society. And their journal, the Journal of Numerical Cognition, is um, completely open access with no fees. And so I really believe in that model. Uh, so it's linked to a society I believe in and love to support. Uh, and I love the publishing model of that journal. And so I took on being an associate editor there and am moving off of all of my other duties so I can kind of give my effort to that. Because it does take, the it, the interface is way clunkier than when you do pay for the service. Um, but mm -hmm. I love the fact that everything is open access and everything, um, is free. I don't know. I found those, those, even the, not the professional systems are a little bit clunky. That's a good point. Yeah. Especially from that. It's like I, I reviewed, I was an action editor for one journal for a little while. And, uh, it was like, I could never tell what email I was sending to whom. I had no idea what was being in the context of these emails. What was the, in the body? I had no idea. Um, this is really interesting. I'm really glad that we talked about this today because I've seen a lot of people drawing firm lines in the sand about this and saying, I will never publish with these journals. I will never review for these journals. And I really like the, the principled stance and the, and the, uh, measured stance that you've taken on it. And I think that that's a really good, approach. I like that. It's kind of more like the, the stages of morality, right? You've got people who are that line in the sand who are like, there's everything is black or white. And you're sort of like, beyond that stage of morality. And you're at the point where you're like, listen, you've got well, you have it figured out. It's like, well, I mean, it's not ideal that it waits a whole year, but it's only a year. And then it's open access to everyone after that. You're, so I mean, that's I like that a lot. You're always so kind to me on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> on the oh, yeah. that prepositional phrase in general in general Jess in general thank you <laughs> today you're so nice today, today. yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> no I guess I don't I don't I definitely have never that you're that is a much kinder way than I would ever describe it to myself but I guess I'm more just a realist and you know it's I I I don't tend that that's a that is a hill that I, um, you know, am interested in supporting, but not mm -hmm. in dying on. Yes. Uh, that is not that is not my hill. That's not my battle. Um, and so kind of I approach everything in open science. I think we've talked about this as kind of, you know, and trying to encourage other people with their open science practices of, you know, do the best that you can and when mm -hmm. you can. Um, and uh, I find that's kind of a better way to change my own behavior. And so I try the best that I can. Uh, and otherwise, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't stop my students from getting the publication that they want in the places, you know, the, at the journal that they want to go for, because it might be an Elsevier journal. So then I try to backdoor, how can we do other things to kind of get around that? Uh, mm -hmm. and then slowly, you know, move, move us away from Elsevier in general or other mm. for-profit publishing companies but how about you are you on review boards for any uh not on review boards but i'm still i do still review for them mm. every once in a while just depending on how aligned the the um the paper is with my actual work and um 
that's really it. And how much other stuff I have going on. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it is a nice way to be like, listen, this is not quite aligned with my work. Also, it's this journal that I don't really love their policies on. Mm-hmm. I'd rather spend my reviewing time reviewing for someone who is better aligned with my ideals of how I think science should work. Mm-hmm. So I will try to pr- I prioritize the other journals. Mm-hmm. I don't do it very often. I think maybe twice last year um, I did, but not – I don't know if I've done any this year yet. I haven't tallied anything up for this year. Yeah. So who knows? All right. So, so we're at landing on supporting open science in any way you can. Yeah, including making sure the public can access your work. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, if you were, you know, had woken up today and wondered – what is going – why do people go on and on about Elsevier and the internet? You're welcome. <laughs> now you know. This is a a niche episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's, it's universal. I think that this is going to come up more and more. And I think that people who are especially uh, graduate students or you're just moving into the field, I think you're going to hear about this a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is the, it was a secret that was kept for a while and it's not so secret anymore. No. And I, Um, I see, like I said, this one uh, society that I'm part of, you know, very purposely having this model of, you know, let's be open access from the start. I sometimes hear my other societies, you know, should we move into a model like this? uh You know, unfortunately these publishers give a lot of money back to societies that they've gotten used to getting, um, and it, that's hard to yeah. walk away from. Um, but I hope that more, if we kind of see societies moving to this model of, you know, using your, you know, passionate, you know, society members to help keep, you can, you can keep these free, you know, openly available journals, um, for your society. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thanks so much for talking about this. I really appreciated hearing your stance on it. Yeah, you too, Jess. You know, I just love talking to you. Yeah, same. Okay, talk to you soon then. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Within and Between. For information about this and all our episodes, you can visit our website, withinandbetweenpod.com. Connect with us on Twitter at within underscore between, where you can send us questions about developmental science and developmental science See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>